I start this morning with a simple question. What does the death of Jesus of Nazareth mean to you? What does the death of Jesus of Nazareth mean to you? We've been studying so far throughout this Gospel of Mark as we've continued going through this wonderful book together. We've been introduced to the fact that Jesus is going to die. Even last week as we looked through these uh, same verses, verse 33 last week to verse 45, Jesus announces to his disciples that he is going to die. He's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, betrayed by one of his best friends. He was going to be arrested. He was going to be tried. He was going to be mocked. In fact, we read in chapter 10 here in verse number 34 that they will spit on him. He would be humiliated. He would be disgraced. Someone who was being followed by large crowds, people who had been healed by him, people who had been delivered by him, they were now having to confront the fact, or at least his disciples, that he was going to be mocked, he was going to be killed, and yes, he would rise again. But over and over, he's been informing his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. But so far in the first ten chapters of the book of Mark, we haven't yet honestly learned why he's going to die. Why is Jesus going to die? We've learned at the beginning of the gospel, he's the king. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the herald, the proclamation that the king over God's kingdom is here. We have seen his character throughout the book of Mark, that he is a servant king. He is a compassionate king. He came to deliver those who were in bondage to Satan and to sin. We've seen that throughout this book, and now we're getting introduced to the fact that he's going to die, that he's going to be rejected by the religious leaders of his day, by the political leaders of his day. And yet, we have not answered the question, why? Until now. Now last week I looked at these 13 verses, verse 33 through 45, to try to draw out the main point of them, what true greatness is. True greatness in Jesus' eyes is not how high you can climb up the ladder of earthly success, of power, of privilege, of prestige, of importance. Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by how low down the ladder you are willing to go and boost those above you. How much you are willing to serve instead of being served. And that's the main idea that Jesus is getting at here. And yet I, I was realizing that we should not leave this passage until we focus on verse 45 and just verse 45. Because Jesus is revealing for, his, him, for us all why he needed to die. Will you look with me at verse 45 alone? Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Not to be served, but to serve. Now listen to these words. These will be the focus of our message this morning. And to give his life a ransom for many. Why did Jesus die? What does the death of Jesus of Nazareth mean to you? It is because he 
would be a ransom for many. The title of our message this morning is simply, A Ransom for Many. And I want to ask you this morning, whether the death of Jesus of Nazareth has been your ransom. And if so, how should that change the way that you live today? I want to start, first of all, by just understanding an awful reality. An awful reality. I want us to start, first of all, by thinking simply about what a ransom is. That's the word here that's used in our text. A ransom. Now, perhaps your mind, like my mind, would first go to a criminal scenario. Isn't that where our minds always go? A criminal ransom. In fact, very tragically, I heard uh, just on the news recently, I saw a video of uh, a report of a great-grandma in Mexico. She was an American citizen who has been going back and forth from the U.S. to a retirement village in Mexico. She was abducted, and she is being held for ransom. And Americans right now are, are I think I saw there was 500 or so recently that have been kidnapped or, or something like that in Mexico. It's a very dangerous situation there. Maybe your mind goes there. Some of you probably remember yourself, the Patty Hearst kidnapping. She was ransomed. A price was paid back in the 1970s for the heiress of the Hearst fortune. They paid $6 million for her. Today, that would be nearly $30 million for her to be released. Another, I, I, I saw in the Guinness Book of World Records, the greatest ransom ever paid was for the last king of the Incas. He was kidnapped by a Spanish conquistador back in the 1500s. And apparently a price was paid for his ransom that in today's money would be worth $1.5 billion or so. $1.5 billion for a single life. So we're familiar with that kind of a, a ransom. Someone is being held and a payment needs to be made to release that person. In fact, Merriam's dictionary, Merriam-Webster dictionary just defines a ransom as a consideration paid or demanded for the release of someone or something from captivity. And that probably fits with what we ordinary, ordinarily think. But the idea here of the ransom is beyond this dramatic captive scenario. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament of your Bible, you see the idea of ransom or redemption. That would be another way to describe it. Redeeming something. As the price that is paid to obtain what is being held. What is being demanded. What is an obligation or a demand. We see in the Old Testament, for example, when someone was, was needed to be sold into servitude. They did not have money to obtain a debt. They would have to work as a servant, an indentured servant, in order to repay. And they could be redeemed. They could be ransomed. By what? Paying the debt. If you did not have, you could not pay for something, there would be a pledge or a ransom a, 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 a taken from you. It might be your pledge of your, of your overcoat. It might be of some property of yours. And you would need to redeem it. You would need to ransom it. You would need to pay what was the obligation. I was thinking about this. I think today one of the best examples of it is the impound lot. 
The, impound, the Minneapolis impound lot down there on Van White Boulevard, near north. Your car gets towed. You weren't supposed to park all week in the front lot at Straight Gate Church, and you got towed. No, I'm just kidding. Don't worry about that. But do let Dave McKean know, or you never know what's going to happen. Um, Dave, have we towed anyone recently? Okay, good. All right. Well, uh, you've got your permission now. You heard from Dave. It's been a number of years. No, but your car gets towed. It gets taken to the impound lot. And what happens? You go to the impound lot, and what are they going to say? Where's your, whatever, $140 payment for the tow charge? It's $18 a day, and that bill goes up quickly, and they're just going to hold your car until what? A ransom is paid. So your car is redeemed. That is the idea of a ransom. And it's what Jesus is saying here. Listen to again what he said. He came to give his life a ransom for many. Let's break that down a little bit. What, first of all, is the reality here? The reality here is what Jesus is saying about you and about me and about every other human being who has ever lived. What is Jesus saying about us? We are what? Slaves? We're captives? Could I put it this way? We're in the impound lot? You say, why are we in the impound lot? Because we chose it. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 8. He was speaking to the Jews of his day who were so proud of the fact that they were fierce, independent Jews. Jesus is going to give them something else. He says, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou? How are you saying ye shall be made free? They're saying, we've never been a slave. We've never been in captivity. Well, in fact, that was blindness because they were in captivity right then to the Romans. But Jesus wasn't talking about political captivity. Listen to what he said. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Whoever commits sin is the, literally the slave of sin. How am I a captive? How could I be a servant? It's because I have chosen it. By the commission, by doing sin and being in bondage to it. Now maybe for some of us this morning, that's just too hard to accept. We say, but I'm, I'm a good person. Do I do bad things? Yes, sometimes. But I'm actually a good person. But let me ask you this, friend. Why is it the case for every single one of us that we know what is right and yet we do what is wrong? How many times have you and me, this guy right up here, knew what was the right thing to do in a situation and we chose to do what was wrong? What is that saying about us? We are doing something other than what we know to do. Why? Because we were born slaves to sin. You say, in what way are we slaves to sin? We are slaves to sin at its greatest root because we are slaves 
to ourselves. Say, what do you mean by that? I mean, we are enslaved to our own desires. We are slaves to our own selfishness, to our own self-centeredness. At the root of our universe from the time we grow up is who? Me. You know what's one of the first words in any child's English vocabulary? Believe me, I have experience. Mine. Any parents here want to tell me I'm wrong? Do you think I needed to train my beautiful two-year-old princess, Emma, to say, that's mine? You think I needed to train her to say that? No. Because from the time she began growing up, that's mine. She was at the center of her own universe, and so was I, and so are you. We are at the center of our own moral universe. And that's why ultimately we are slaves. Because we are in bondage to our own brokenness, to our own desires, to our own selfish interests. And when God gives the two greatest commandments, his two greatest moral obligations to man, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. He says, I will be at the center of your moral universe. And human beings say, no, that's mine. I am. We're slaves. The second great moral obligation that God gave to man, as Jesus himself said, is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We don't need to learn to love ourselves. That's not what Jesus was saying when he said that. The point is you do love yourself. You do love your own interests, your own desires. They are, at the nat they are naturally at the center of your moral universe. And Jesus says, no, I came to reveal to you and enable you to live the way God wants, with God at the center of your moral universe and with others being the object of your selfless love. You love them as yourself. And we're broken. And from our first father, Adam, we have received this human nature that is utterly in rebellion to God, and we are slaves to it. We know what is right so often, and we do what is wrong because of our slavery to sin. We are captives. You know, friends, we cannot understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot accept the gospel of Jesus Christ unless we humble ourselves before God and say, God, I am a slave. I am a captive. I have been at the center of my own moral universe. I am not in a right relationship with you, and I'm the cause, not other things. Are you willing to identify yourself by your nature from your birth and say, no matter how moral and upstanding I am and I appear in the eyes of others, I am a slave to myself. I have been enslaved and captive to my own desires, to my sin. That's the reality that Jesus is saying when he says, I came to give myself a ransom. But secondly, notice what I'm going to call here a redemption. A redemption. Jesus says, I came to give 
my life a ransom. Again, that idea of that word is redemption, a payment, a payment for many. What does it mean that Jesus gave his life a ransom? Well, again, let's go back to the impound lot. We're the one in the impound lot. We're behind the fence. We're behind the barbed wire. A payment needs to be made. The payment of what is due. Jesus is saying, I came to make the payment to release you from your slavery, from your captivity. Now, the first thing we need to understand about this payment that Jesus is making from the simple text right in front of us is that there's a sacrifice. Notice what Jesus said. Will you look with me at verse 45? For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. We looked at that last week. And why did he come? He came to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life. The payment that Jesus of Nazareth made was his life. Listen to how Peter, someone who heard these words, come from Jesus' mouth. Can you imagine that privilege of hearing Jesus speak, of hearing these words from his mouth for the very first time? Listen to what Peter said about our ransom. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 18, he says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed. There's that idea. That's the same idea of the word ransom. You were not, you could easily translate it, ransomed. You were not ransomed or redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. In other words, he's saying, the payment that you were redeemed or ransomed with wasn't money. God didn't come, Jesus did not come and shell out money for you. Instead, he says, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The Old Testament of our Bibles, the Jews were very familiar with the idea of a lamb or of a goat being killed as a sacrifice for someone's sin. And now Jesus of Nazareth comes as the Savior, not only of the Israelites, but of all men and women. And he came as a sacrifice. He gave his life. Now, by the way, do you notice here that it says that he came to give his life? Just one footnote. Make sure you and I are settled on the idea that Jesus was not a victim of circumstance. That it was outside his control that he died. That he was just a kind of radical revolutionary who was trying to, to try to reform society and he got a little too far over his skis and the Romans put him to death like you might hear some people say today, oh yeah, Jesus was a good man, too bad he died. No, no, no. Jesus came to die. That was his purpose in coming. In fact, we learn elsewhere in the scripture that he was foreordained from the foundation of the world. This was a part of God's plan from the foundation of the world, the redemption of humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. He came to give his life. But notice not only here there's a sacrifice, but also here clearly there's a substitution. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, let's go back to the text. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and he came to give his life a ransom for many. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, 
But there are those who are Greek scholars who would say that word that is translated for in our Bibles is a word that has often the meaning of instead of. Instead of. Now, let's listen to if we said it that way. He came to give his life a ransom instead of many. Instead of. What's that idea? The idea is of a substitute. The idea is of someone dying instead of someone else. And it begins to make sense when we realize, for example, from Romans chapter 6, that the wages of sin, the payment of sin, is death. Your death, my death. And that's not just a physical death, what we would call the first death. It is what the Bible refers to as the second death. The death not only of the separation from your body, your soul being separated from your body. That's your first death. You are no, now only a husk. You lie in a casket. There's no life. Your soul has left your body. The second death is the separation of your soul eternally from God. The separation from God in the judgment of hell. Jesus himself spoke very candidly about this topic, about the eternal separation of the soul from God who made that being. The wages of sin is death. That's why in order for a ransom to be paid, the price was death. The price was one's life, my life, your life. But Jesus came to be a substitute. Do you know this was predicted, this was prophesied hundreds of years before? Perhaps most clearly in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, again, hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to earth. Listen to what it said. But he, looking to God's suffering servant, his selected Messiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the discipline, the chastening of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What does that sound like? Turned everyone to his own way. Sounds like the slavery of sin, doesn't it? Being chained to our own selfish desires. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, this servant, the iniquity of us all. You see, the substitutionary death of Jesus is like this. It's like you and me being slaves to sin. We have sin that is weighing us down, that is the burden on all of us that we cannot be delivered from. Jesus came so that as scripture says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him. There is a substitution instead of us. Jesus dies. And thirdly, there's a satisfaction. He gave his life a ransom, a payment when Jesus died on the cross, it is recorded for us in the gospel that he finished his life with these words, it is finished. Do you know what feels really, really wonderful? To pay a bill. 
You say, oh, I don't know about, no, no, really, be, 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 just think about this for a minute. Maybe you have had a debt at some point. You had a car debt. You had a student loan debt. You had something, a credit card debt, something that was paid, and you were paying interest on, and that interest was accumulating each month, and then there was one time that you walked into the, whatever the establishment was, or maybe you circulated straight from your bank account, and you paid it off entirely, and you said, I'm never going to get another bill. It's done! You know, I liked it in the old days, when they would take that red stamp and said, paid in full paid in full, and you, that bill would never be charged to you again. It was satisfied. It was completely done. What Jesus is saying here is when I came to give my life a ransom for many, my payment, my life that I gave for you was a perfect and complete satisfaction of your debt before God. It was paid in full. And I just want to say this for one moment, friends. Romans chapter 8 says that for you, those of you that are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no debt remaining. And for some of us who even have been believers a long time, we have a hard time sometimes accepting that when Jesus paid it in full, he really paid it in full. We look at our own weakness and our own failure and our own difficulty and we say, surely, did he really pay for this sin too? And the answer from the Bible always comes back, yes, he did. He paid for that one too. He paid in full. What then? If Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many, what then? Well, notice thirdly what I'm going to call here a release. There's a reality of, who our, of what our captivity is. There's a redemption of the payment of Jesus Christ for it. And thirdly, there's a release. You go to the impound lot. You pull out your checkbook. Well, maybe they don't. I don't know if they accept that or not. I don't know whether you pay cash. Whatever you pay at the impound lot, you pay them. And what do they say? Go get your car. The gate will open up and you can take it. The car has been released. And in the same way, Jesus came to give his life a ransom so that you and I would be free. That you and I would no longer be slaves to our own brokenness. Slaves to our own nature. Slaves to sin. He came to open the impound lot and say, Anyone can come out. The door's open. I've paid. It's paid in full. Which means this. The only ones who are left in the impound lot are those who choose to be. The only ones who need remain slaves to sin are those who say, no, I like it where I'm here. There's some sunshine in the impound lot. It's not all too bad. Yeah, I'm fenced in. Yeah, I'm chained in. Yeah, I can't move. But that's okay. I like it here. Those are the only ones who need to stay in the impound lot. When Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. Now, don't get tripped up over that word many. We learn actually in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Don't get tripped up over that word, a ransom for many. He's not trying to say a, a contradiction to this verse saying, who was Jesus' ransom for? It was for everyone. His payment was sufficient to cover the sins of the entire world, not some special select group. But there is this point. There is the idea that Jesus' ransom is effective only for those who accept it. You know, friends, you could go to the impound lot today in North Minneapolis and you could say to them, I want you to total up every single dollar that's owed by anyone here. I'm going to pay off the entire bill for the entire impound lot and you could pay it off. And what would happen? Those cars would probably still be sitting there unless someone came to actually pick it up. And for how many countless millions and even billions of people today, Jesus has paid the bill for the entire impound lot. He has given his life a ransom for all. But that ransom will only be effective for many, not all, because they have never accepted, embraced the payment that has been made for them by kneeling before Jesus as their Savior and King and accepting him as their own. Friends, what Jesus said to those Jews in John chapter 8 was simply this. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. He ransomed you. He ransomed me with the payment of his own life. And that means he will make you free if you desire it this morning, if you will accept him for who he is, the king of God's kingdom. I want to say to anyone here, if you are still wondering whether you're in captivity to sin, you're still in slavery to your own desires, you know you don't stand in a right relationship with God. The door of the impound lot is open. Freedom is available. Your ransom has been paid in full. All that's left is to embrace Jesus and walk out of that impound lot with him. Don't leave here this morning without knowing that your ransom has been paid. But there's something else for all of us as well. It's the idea of what this means if you're here sitting here today and you say, he has paid my ransom. I have accepted him. It's been paid in full. I know there's no condemnation for me. What then? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says these words, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see the idea? If Jesus paid your ransom at the impound lot, he bought you. You're his. Can I put it this way without being offensive? You're his servant. You're his slave by obligation. He bought you. Therefore what? Glorify God with your body. You know who he was talking to in the very first instance of this was he was talking to Corinthian people who were involved in idolatry and immorality. That's why he said to them, God bought your body too, buddy. Don't go sleeping around. Don't go looking at what you shouldn't look at. 
don't be engaged in sin of your body. Your body's God's. He bought it. With what? With the life of his son. So glorify him. Live for him. You see, friends, our gratitude for being bought, paid in full, out of the impound lot, when that car rolls out of that impound lot, our whole reaction is, God, where now? You take the wheel. God, I'm not the center of my moral universe. You bought me. You are. What do you want me to do today? What do you want me to say? How do you want me to live? You tell me what not to do, and I'm not going to do it. You tell me what to do, and I'm going to do it. Out of what? Well, above all things, out of love. Out of gratitude. Out of a desire to live for the one who gave his life for us. Ye are bought with a price. He did pay the ransom for you. So therefore, live in that way. And there's one more thing. I want to tie it back ultimately to the very theme that we've been talking about. Jesus saying what true greatness is. True greatness is not climbing up the ladder. True greatness is the willingness to go to the very bottom rung of the ladder and serve those who are here. Let's just bring ourselves back into what Jesus said here. He said his example of greatness. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, not to serve, but, sorry, to be served, but to minister, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus' greatness, his humility, was in that he came to sacrificially give of himself for people who didn't deserve it. You and I didn't deserve a ransom payment. We didn't do anything to merit it. Friends, do you know what that tells me about service in your daily life? It means that you and I are called to serve people who don't deserve it, but we do it anyway. You know what might transform your marriage? If you stop looking at serving your spouse as being for when they kind of get around to treating you better. I'm waiting for, for her to start treating me a little better and, and then, yep, I'll apply that, all that stuff about serving. No. No, your, your obligation is to serve and to love your spouse no matter how they're treating you. Because that's what Jesus showed when he came to serve and to give his life sacrificially for those who never deserved it. That's why, in particular, Paul tells husbands, husbands, love your wife, uh, wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Love your wives, no matter how they treat you. Serve them. Wives, love your husbands. Serve them, no matter how they're treating you. And you could just apply this to every single other relationship of life. If Jesus' example of greatness was coming to serve and to sacrifice his life for those who didn't deserve it, you and me. He says, are you a Christian? Are you in my kingdom? Are you, in my, are you my follower? Start loving and serving and sacrificing for people independent of whether they're meriting it in your eyes. Just do it. Because that's what I did for you. I want to close, friends, with the question I started with. What does the death of Jesus Christ mean to you? Does it mean this? He's your ransom? He paid in full the debt that you could never pay? I hope so. But is it, all, is it also this? Is it your example? 
that this week you're going to love, you're going to serve, you're going to sacrifice whether or not those around you are marrying it in your own eyes. A ransom for many, may it be. A ransom for us and our own.